Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We have a, uh, we, the world has a new president in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro. And I'm sure Mark will correct me on the pronunciation here, but today's Financial Times. The headline, he's poised to upend Brazil's foreign policy. He said, you can be sure Trump will have a great ally in the Southern Hemisphere. Trump is an example to me and in many ways to Brazil. This is the guy who in 1998 said, and I quote, Pinochet should have killed more people. In 2017 in Rio de Janeiro, he said, I have five children, four were boys, and on the fifth I got weak and had a daughter. A state in Brazil, Accra, he said, let's shoot all the PT members here, the indigenous rights group. He says, my advice, to, and I do it, I cheat on my taxes as much as possible. If I don't need to pay anything, I don't pay. He said, if your son acts like this, he's gay, he deserves a smack and he'll change his behavior. He said, I'm favorable to torture and you know this. It just goes on and on. I mean, this guy's like a, a mini Duterte. So on the line with us is our old friend, Mark Weisbrot, the co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, CEPR.net is the website. He's also the president of Just Foreign Policy and the author of numerous books, including his most recent, Failed, What the Experts Got Wrong About the Global Economy. You can tweet him at Mark Weisbrot, W-E-I-S-B-R-O-T. Mark, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. It's been way too long since we have talked. So first of all, tell me how to pronounce this guy's name and what do we need to know about the new president of Brazil? Jair Bolsonaro, and he's well, you said most of what we need to know. I mean, he's pretty horrible, and very few people can really defend him publicly, although you do see the financial markets and other a lot of foreign investors getting excited about him because he will do a lot of the things that they want, including privatization, opening up agriculture without any regard to the environment, a lot of those kinds of things. In other words, chop down the rainforest to grow soy for cattle and things like that? Yes. He, yeah. He's going to expand as much of that as he can get away with. Is he 
Just another Trump, and I say that advisedly, but so far we still have what appears to be a functioning democracy in the United States. You know, Trump hasn't declared a state of emergency, although God only knows what's going to happen when 5,000 soldiers get to the southern border. He hasn't suspended elections. He hasn't even gone as far, frankly, as John Adams did in 1789, or 98, rather, with the Alien Sedition Act. Is Bolsonaro like that, or is he moving in a more of a Pinochet direction? Is it actually possible that this could be the end of representative democracy in a republic of Brazil? It's definitely possible. I mean, he's been in the Congress for 30 years, and the things he was saying that you said that you quoted, and there are many others, are positions he's had for the, the whole time. Mm-hmm. So this is like I, Steve King just got elected president? Yeah, it's worse than that. Wow. I mean, it is really, you know, uh, the comparison, there's some relevant comparisons to Trump because, you know, it's similar in the sense that the media helped Trump get elected even though they didn't like him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true in this case as well. Uh, but, yeah, he's much worse. And, you know, Brazil has only had democracy for uh, 30-something years, and it had dictatorship before that. And the institutions are relatively weak. We saw that. It was the weakness of the democratic institutions, actually, and the way they were destroyed by not only the right, but the center, the so-called center that gave us Bolsonaro. And I think that's very important because you don't see that so much in the news. But, you know, Bolsonaro came to power because they impeached Dilma, the elected president, in 2016 without even charging her with an actual crime. And then, because Lula da Silva, the former president for two terms, from 2003 to 2011, because he was the most popular politician in the country and would have defeated Bolsonaro very easily, he was thrown into jail and then prohibited from running from president, even though the UN Human Rights commission said that he had to be allowed to run and then they cut him off from media as well so he couldn't say things to the press. who is they this was the courts and that was what the right did again this was with they packed the, the courts uh, the way that mitch mcconnell's doing right now yeah, is that they what you're were talking able about? to use the judiciary to go after the pt the workers party that is right it was all organized to win what they couldn't win at the ballot box after four elections in which the Workers' Party won. So Mm. this was a coup, and then it was, again, the political persecution of Lula. And the center, such as it is in Brazil, well, this main center party was the Brazilian Social Democratic Party. They're the ones that ran against Lula and Dilma in the previous elections. And then they created this monster because... People went with Bolsonaro, and that's where you have some similarity to Trump, because they thought they saw him as an outsider. And in the case of Brazil, because the media had spent 16 years demonizing the Workers' Party and pretending as though it was the center of corruption in Brazil, when in reality it was just a party that had some corruption like all the other parties, Mm. almost certainly less. 
but the media convinced people that this was the party that was responsible for corruption and then allowed Bolsonaro to campaign as the person who would clean it up. Now, genuinely right-wing governments, I mean, fascistic governments, sometimes actually take care of their people in order to maintain power. You know, Hitler, Mussolini both did that. I don't know about Franco. Expanded, actually, the social safety net in many regards. On the other hand, in Central and South America, what we've seen is that when these conservative governments take over and feel free to fill in the areas where my knowledge on this is very gray, but it seems like this has been the case in Central America and Honduras, Nicaragua and El Salvador, that they do things like cutting back on the social safety net, cutting back on education, cutting back on health care, cutting back on social security uh, in order to be able to transfer more wealth to the very wealthy people who basically are the ones who are supporting the right wing governments. And then you get these basically revolts and you know refugees and, and disasters and all these kind of things. A, is that a reasonable analysis? And B, if that's the case, do you think that that's the direction that Bolsonaro is going to go in Brazil? And might that then turn into the thing that bites him? Well, you have right-wing and authoritarian populist governments in the past that did fairly well economically, but that was in the 60s and 70s. Mm. Since the 1980s, you can't really point to any right-wing government of any kind that really did improve people's living standards. And you don't have to look just at history. You can look at Bolsonaro himself and who he's appointed for his finance minister and the economic policies that his team is proposing. And those will definitely lower living standards. I mean, they want to cut pensions, for example. So that's going to be a big bite because a lot of families live off of public pensions and mm. just uh, necessarily one person. And, of course, he's going to attack unions and the landless workers movement. He wants to kill them, basically. He's, mm. he's pretty much said, the, he told the left, you, you can either leave the country or go to jail. So, yeah, he's going to weaken labor. He's going to weaken and repress violently the social movements. And so he will cut the budget. The present government has already been cutting spending for programs like Bolsa Familia, which is the program that pulled people out of poverty in the countryside under Lula and Dilma. So, yeah, he's going to go all the way. And in that sense, you can't really call him a populist. I mean, even Trump, who's as fake a populist as you can almost imagine, he did so far stick to his promise of not cutting Social Security and Medicare, which is how he distinguished himself from the other Republican mm. candidates and was able to pose as a populist. You don't even have that when it comes right now to Bolsonaro. Remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. And just just for the record, Trump's budget, his last budget, actually did cut both Social Security and Medicare. It didn't cut the benefits to the people, but it cut the administration, the staff, and of course that's going to degrade services, I think. But, but excellent point, Mark. Mark, thanks so much for being with us. Sure. Thank great, you, Tom. Great, great talking with you. Mark Weisbrot, you can tweet him at Mark Weisbrot, and CEPR.net is the website. Hang on just a second. This is the Tom Hartman Program. He's the co-director of the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR.net, and his most recent book, Failed, What the Experts Got Wrong About the Global Economy. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. Romy in Cleveland, Ohio. Hey, Romy, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? I'm concerned about the 
way things are going with these shootings that are taking place, mm-hmm. and we can have a condition in this country where the president will be allowed to declare a national emergency, right? And subsequently, suspending elections. Among other things, I think the first thing to go would be habeas corpus, you know, your rights under the law. But yeah, I understand where you're going with this. All right. So therefore, you just got through talking about Brazil. Yep. That can be an example of where we can be headed if someone or some group is not planning to counteract these kinds of moves. And I haven't heard anybody talking about it. The Democratic Party seems to be allowing all kinds of elections to be stolen. And... I don't think this is a good place to be. Yeah, I share your concern, Romy. And my best hope is that the Democratic Party is rapidly waking up to the corrupt rot within the Republican Party that has driven them to, over the last 40 years, engage in this massive election fraud that's referred to by the media as voter suppression, and that we can do something about it. But other than We all have to wake up. We have to wake up as many of our friends as we possibly can, tell them about alternative media, and, you know, we just, we need to do that. Romy, thanks a lot for the call. Doug, in Caledonia, Michigan. Hey, Doug, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I just had a little tidbit on the problems that technology might be causing for millennials. I Mm -hmm. saw a BBC study on how a lot of med school students are entering med school that have very good grades, they're very skilled, but they have no manual dexterity for, like, cutting tissue or making sutures and stuff like that. I mean, they can swipe tablets all day, but they never had to, like, you know, fix something with their hands before. Right, and they didn't probably learn cursive writing. I mean, that's the new thing is let's not teach cursive, which is one of the very best ways to develop hand-eye coordination at an early age. Good call. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Where did you see that, Doug? BBC study. So, study so this BBC was study. British doctors then, presumably? I assume it's about British doctors. Yeah, that's remarkable. But what? I'm sure it's not just something they're facing. I'm sure it's probably. Yeah, our country and theirs are so similar in so many regards, I mean, in terms of the trends that we face. And, and particularly, they were whacked by Thatcher at the same time we were whacked by Reagan. And we've both been dealing with neoliberalism ever since in ways that have produced everything from Donald Trump here to Brexit there. And the BBC is a little more likely to tell us about it than uh, American media. That's not really a story that's, you know, worthy of sharing with the American people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> BBC is genuinely independent. Doug, thanks for the heads up on that. That's fascinating. I'm going to pick up your phone calls here. There's some fascinating topics I'm going to dig into. And i got to tell you, we have a geeky science coming up and a weird conspiracy against Robert Mueller. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Uh, This is absolutely fascinating. Both Natasha Bertrand, who is a a reporter for The Atlantic, who is very, very highly regarded, and Jane Mayer, who writes for The New Yorker and has written a whole bunch of books and is just absolutely brilliant, are reporting that there is a group that is reaching out, looking for women who are willing to assert that they were sexually harassed or abused or assaulted by Robert Mueller. And they're going to roll, and if they can get these women, they're going to roll them out when the Mueller report comes out by way of discrediting Robert Mueller. 
This is just amazing. One of these reporters says, two weeks ago, I was contacted by a woman who claimed to be a former associate of Mueller who said that she got a phone call from a man working on behalf of a Republican operative who was paying women to come forward to make up sexual assault allegations. He then gets in touch with this person who's offering the money. Presumably, the person didn't know he was a reporter. And he said, yeah, he's extremely willing to confirm that he was indeed paying women to tell stories about Mueller. He says, I concluded that this was an effort to discredit journalists working on the Trump-Russia story by planning a false story and to see who would print it. Get ready, right? Get ready. This is nuts. BlindsGalore.com was the first place you could buy custom window treatments online. And because of that, they know what they're doing. They've been doing this for over 20 years and have covered over 2 million windows and know exactly how to get you the right blinds at the right price. They make it easy. They made it easy for Louise and me to go in and order. It was a breeze. It will be for you, too. Blinds Galore's products are hand-built from scratch, delivered right to your door, and created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help you every step of the way, either online or over the phone. Plus, they have the industry's best guarantee. If you don't like your custom blinds or shades for any reason, wrong color, you measured wrong, you don't like the style, you can exchange it for another covering for free. Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of the free expertise. It doesn't get any better than that. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. Go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know we sent you. That's BlindsGalore.com. Hey, let's check in with our geeky science alert here. Yes, indeed. Geeky science it is. Geeky science alert here brought to you, by the way, by my new book. The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight was just released in third edition with all kinds of updated information on climate change and all that kind of stuff. So you can check that out wherever you get your books. Here's the science story. Even a 10-minute walk may be good for the brain. This by Gretchen Reynolds in this week's New York Times. 10 minutes of mild, almost languorous exercise, like taking a walk, right, can immediately alter how certain parts of the brain communicate and coordinate with one another and improve memory function, according to an encouraging new neurological study. The findings suggest that exercise does not need to be prolonged or intense to benefit the brain and that the effects can begin far more quickly than many of us expect. So it's pretty cool. And there's that. And then the second one, you got a twofer here on the geeky science. The second one is uh, humanity has wiped out 60% of the animal population since 1970. Now, this is not so much good news because uh, what it means is that we're destroying the web of life that supports us. This is a new study that was done by 59 scientists around the globe and produced by the World Wildlife Federation, the WWF. And what they found was the consumption of food and resources by the global human population is destroying the web of life, which was billions of years in the making, upon which human society ultimately depends for clean air, water, and everything else. They said, this is uh, Mike Barrett, the executive director of science and conservation at WWF. He says, if there's a 60% decline in the human population, that'd be equivalent to emptying North America, South America, Africa, Europe, China, and Oceania. That is the scale of what we have done to the non-human animals on this planet. He said, it's more, this is far more than just about losing the wonders of nature. This is actually now jeopardizing the future of people. Nature is not something nice to have. Nature is our life support system. Other recent analysis revealed that humankind has destroyed 83% of all mammals, 
and half of the world's plants since the dawn of civilization. And that even if we stopped killing everything now, it would take 7 million years for the world to recover. The biggest cause of this wildlife loss is the destruction of natural habitats to create farmland. Killing for food is the second biggest cause. 300 mammal species are being eaten into extinction. Chemical pollution is significant. Half the world's killer whale populations are now doomed to die from PCB contamination. And uh, it's being driven by ever-expanding agriculture producing soy, which is being exported to countries to feed pigs and chickens. Amazing. You want to get healthy? Become a vegan. Chris in Oakland, California. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I know you're very, a very learned man, and I, I know you, you uh, have spoken about medical issues in the past, and I wanted to get your opinion on something. There are certain diseases or afflictions, once we get them, we're inoculated from them, and then others that once we get them, we're more susceptible. Going forward, when this kabuki cabal that's going on right now ultimately fails, and I believe it will. I think, I think liberty and freedom are too ingrained in our DNA, and our free press is uh, too strong, and those our social media for him not to fail. But going forward, do you think after this we will learn a lesson? We will be more inoculated against the next Donald Trump type character that comes along, or do you think that we'll be more susceptible? I think it'll be a little bit of both, but the, the lens through which I view this stuff, Chris, is that of, of cults. And I do that because uh, having lived in Germany for a year and my, my mentor, Gottfried Mueller, who uh, you know, passed away at the age of 92 about, a, I don't know, six, eight years ago, was in Hitler's army. You know, he, was, he parachuted uh, early in the war, parachuted into uh, what was then uh, part of uh, Iran. It was the Kurdistan part of Iran to help the Kurds. He spoke their language. Uh, to help the Kurds uh, get the oil for Hitler. And he was immediately arrested by the British and the Iranians and held in a prison cell until the end of the war, for which he says, thank God, you know, I never killed anybody. But he told me stories about what it was like being a young man in Hitler's Germany. A number of the people who worked with the organization, the Salem International Organization at that time, they've all passed away now. Horst von Heyer was one of them. He was, a, he was part of the Hitler Youth. And, uh, you know, we had long conversations. Horst went with me into Uganda. Uh, his assistant was eaten by a crocodile in South Africa. Uh, we, we worked together in Bogota, Colombia. And what I got from these guys was that it was a cult, that Hitler had created a cult, not just a cult of personality, but a religious cult, basically. This idea of the supremacy of the Aryan race, you know, so it was a, a white nationalist cult. The confluence of Christianity with it, there had been this Archbishop Muller, uh, who was appointed by the state in the mid-30s, uh, when basically all the other churches were shut down. And the thing that woke people up from that cult was having the curtain ripped back after World War II and seeing the death camps and seeing the horrors yeah. and seeing the devastation of their country. And, when they and, made the private citizens come through and look. Right, and it shocked them out of their cult following. And the same thing with Japan. I, you know, I have a, a good friend who's Japanese. Now, he's not as old as Herr Mueller was. He was born like I was. I was born in 51. I think he was born in 53. But, you know, he's heard the stories, you know, and uh, the kamikaze pilots to die for the emperor, who was the great-grandson of, of the creator of the earth itself, you know, the sun god, was the highest thing that you could do. And, and that cult got shattered when the Japanese were defeated in war. So if Trump is defeated in a big way and Trumpism is defeated in a big way, I think it could shatter the cult. On the other hand, if they manage to kind of weasel through it 
It's sort of like, you know, in the, in the 1920s, we had a, a not entirely analogous situation. But Teddy Roosevelt, prior to the 1920s, had been a progressive Republican president. And Taft followed him and continued, you know, breaking up Standard Oil and all those things. In fact, the final breakup handle happened during his presidency. And then came the conservative Republicans. And, and uh, uh, Harding, in 1920, campaigned on dropping the top tax rate from 75% down to, down to 25%, which he did when he was elected in 1920. And, and on a slogan of uh, more business in government, less government in business. In other words, privatize and deregulate. And they did that aggressively. And it goosed the economy like nobody's business, which is why we had it called it the Roaring Twenties, which, by the way, is the exact same thing that's happening right now. And it set up the inevitable crash of October of 1929. That crash was so severe and so deep and so long that it woke people up to the Republican con game. And it was three generations before the Republicans took control of the House of Representatives again. I mean, they, they just wandered in the wilderness forever until in the 1970s, Lewis Powell came up with his memo and they organized all the rich people and, and figured out how to bring in the, the Christians and how to bring in the bigots and how to, you know, I mean, they just basically, the, the gun guys, the anti-abortion people, they put together this coalition. But it's not entirely analogous, but, but people did wake up from, from that conservative cult then. It may happen again, but... Chris, I, I'm, I'm making no major predictions here. I mean, it's just... That's one of my major concerns is that we get sort of an, an unsatisfying, lukewarm resolution to this and that there aren't any serious consequences and it just kind of lurches forward again and then we set ourselves up. The thing this. that concerns me the most, the way that Bolasaro and the right took over, took over Brazil, as, as Mark Weisbrot was telling us, was they stacked the courts with a bunch of their right-wing buddies. And during the last few years of the Obama administration, Mitch McConnell refused to, uh, to fill uh, federal judgeships to the point that John Roberts issued a, uh, a, you know, sent a letter to Mitch McConnell and made it public saying that there was a judicial crisis because there were not enough judges and the courts were all backed up. And this was like a year before Obama left office. And Mitch McConnell just completely ignored it and, and also, you know, kept Merrick Garland off the, off the bench. And right now he is packing the courts and he's packing them with the kind of people who I think would support fascism in the United States. That's something that really concerns me in a big way, that if, if the courts in the United States are used the same way that Bolasaro and the right wing used them in uh, Brazil to imprison the, the left, you know, to, I mean, literally putting the ex-president in jail. And here you've got Trump chanting, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. If, if that happens, then, then the game has turned really, really dark, really, really evil. And we're just going to have to wait and see and do everything we can to prevent that. Chris, thanks You're for the call. listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. Zone. If you struggle to lose weight, listen carefully. Zone works. I've never before endorsed a weight loss product, but I've seen the result firsthand with my brilliant wife, Louise, who, like so many, has had her share of diet frustrations. Losing weight is hard, right? Louise heard about Zone. She did her homework, learned it's FDA accepted and that it helps us lose weight in a revolutionary way. Riduzone comes out of university research that discovered a molecule that helps regulate appetite. When it's out of whack, we're always hungry and crave foods we shouldn't eat. And good luck losing weight when you're already starving on day one. Louise tried Riduzone. She looks amazing, and I've never, never seen her this excited about a weight loss product. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough, and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, 
get non-prescription Riduzone. Go to tryriduzone.com and use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to receive up to 65% off on your order and free shipping. That's tryriduzone.com, promo code TOM. What billionaires want. There's uh, two stories, one in The Guardian this morning and the other one on Common Dreams that address this. They're both a result of two different studies. One was a study by the Institute for Policy Studies, IPS. And we've had people from IPS on this program many, many times. And it's about the accumulation of wealth in the United States. And they point out uh, that Jeff Bezos, who is the founder of Amazon, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, these three guys right now have more wealth than the bottom half of America. These three men. As median household wealth has declined since 1982, and by the way, household wealth is, is still, you know, in the 40s, 40 grand more or less. In fact, I think in some areas it's, it's in the 50s. But that's because more than two people now are working in the median household. You go back to 1980 when it was like 1.2 people working in the median household and median household wealth was a little less, but median individual income was actually higher than it is right now. But in any case, as median household wealth has declined since 1982, the Walton, Koch and Mars families, this is, these are three families that inherited their wealth. The Koch brothers inherited their wealth from daddy. The Walton family inherited their, their, their wealth from Sam and the Mars family inherited their wealth from their grandfather who founded the candy company. Those three companies since 1982 have seen their wealth grow by 6,000%. A full-time worker at Amazon making 15 bucks an hour in order to earn the $78.5 billion, which is the amount that Jeff Bezos has made in the last year alone, Just Jeff Bezos, in order to make that $78 billion, they would have to work two and a half million years. Josh Hoxie, who is the co-author of the report, says, Today's extreme wealth inequality is perhaps greater than any time in American history. This is largely the result of rapidly growing dynasties, wealth dynasties, and a rigged economy that enables the ultra-wealthy to grow their wealth to never-before-seen highs. Chuck Collins, Institute of Policy Studies, says these families have used their wealth and power to lobby and rig the rules to expand their wealth and power. And I would point out this is, you know, I keep going back to the Powell memo in 71, Lewis Powell being put on the Supreme Court in 72 by Richard Nixon. And then in 1976 and 78, Lewis Powell in 78, he actually authored the decision in 76. He concurred in the decision uh, in the cases of Buckley versus uh, Vallejo and uh, First National Bank versus Bilotti in 76 and 78, respectively. Those two decisions were the first time in the history of the United States, literally from the founding of the Republic until 1976, the first time in the history of the United States that the Supreme Court had ruled that giving money to a politician was a constitutionally protected right. No Congress ever proposed this. No president ever proposed this. No state ever proposed this. In fact, the opposite. 
Congress has passed numerous laws regulating money in politics, as has, and they've been signed into law by numerous presidents enthusiastically. And, and some states even had this written into their constitution in addition to laws. All got struck down by the Supreme Court. And then this got amplified even greater in 2010 when the five conservatives, the five Republican appointees in the court, uh, you know, wrote, passed the, the Citizens United decision. And then 2013 McCutcheon, which said, basically, if you're a billionaire, you can own an unlimited number of politicians. Up to that point, you could only own something over 200 politicians. Seriously, there was this law. If you look at just the uh, Cokes, the Walmart, and the Mars family, those three wealth dynasties, they own a combined $348 billion. Can you imagine what we could do with that? I mean, I don't want all of it. Each one of them can have, I mean, hey, let them keep a billion dollars each. It's fine with me. Uh, if you look at the 15 wealthiest families with multiple members on the uh, Forbes 400 list, the wealth of every single one of those families came from companies started by an earlier generation. Combine those 15 families are worth $618 billion. So, uh, and, and they make, the, they, they point out contrary to the right wing view that the vast, vastly unequal wealth distribution in American society is the unavoidable result of market forces. No, it's not. There's nothing inevitable about it because once once the uh, Republicans on the Supreme Court ruled that giving money to politicians or using money to buy legislation was protected by the First Amendment, guess what? Rich people started pouring money into the coffers of politicians. And politicians have been doing what they want. Now, Benjamin Page, uh, Jason Seawright, and Matthew Lacombe are writing over at The Guardian. They did, they did an exhaustive study of the 100 wealthiest billionaires in the United States over a 10-year period, all of their public statements and what they're actually lobbying for. The question I'm asking here, by the way, is what do we do about our billionaire problem? We have a problem with the morbidly rich here in the United States. I personally think a wealth tax, if you, if you, have, a, if you have wealth in excess of a billion dollars, then every year you pay 1% of everything above a billion dollars to the government. I realize that's considered confiscatory, right? You know, it's literally the government taking somebody's money. But it is, it is good for American society. It's good for democracy, and it's not going to hurt these families. You're telling me that if you've got $105 billion like the Koch brothers and you have to pay a billion dollars in taxes every year until you're down to just $1 billion, which is not going to happen in your lifetime, that that's somehow going to harm you? I'm not buying it. Taking away people's health care, like Rick Scott did, that, that causes people to die. So what is it that the wealthiest people are doing? They, they looked at the 100 wealthiest billionaires in the United States over a 10-year period, and what they found was that most of America's wealthiest billionaires resemble Charles Koch politically. Quote, obsessed with cutting taxes, especially the estate tax, which only applies to the wealthiest Americans. Opposed to government regulation of the environment. Opposed to government regulation of big banks. Unenthusiastic about government programs to help with jobs. To help maintain incomes of working people. To provide health care to American people. Or for retirement pensions. They broadly oppose all these things or they just don't care. And they're all in favor of cutting or privatizing guaranteed social security benefits. 
Jay in Greensboro, North Carolina, watching on YouTube. Hey, Jay, what's up? It's good to talk to you. You know something else that goes along with income inequality? Three words. Student loan default. Yeah. We are the only developed country in the world where when you graduate from college, you can be in debt. Most Euro Northern European countries, they actually pay students to go to school. Denmark, the Danes have yeah. so good. 200 bucks a month now, in Denmark to go, to go to college. Yeah. Plus they pay for your books. Now, let me steal on this real quick because this needs to be talked about. I, I am one of those many students who probably will be defaulting in a student loan because I work at a job where I got a restaurant raise only 25 cents. I look at heavy stuff all night. And the thing is, they want to be paid, what, 200 a month? I don't try to get an apartment. I don't have the kind of money. I don't. So if I got to go to default, I got to default to rehabilitate my loans. It's sad to say, but economic traits in this country are just that dire. Yeah. And this is the problem with that uh, 2005 bankruptcy bill. And I think, frankly, everybody says, you know, Joe Biden's political fortunes will be hurt by the Nita Hill hearings, which he did not comport himself well. But he was also the author of the bankruptcy bill that made it illegal for, for you to default on a student loan and call it bankruptcy. And I think that's going to hurt him more than anything else. I, I really do. But we'll see. Jay, you're, you're absolutely right. And this is now over a trillion dollars. I think it's up to uh, 1.2, maybe 1.3 or 4 trillion dollars in student loan debt here in the United States from literally virtually nothing. I mean, you know, a few million dollars in student debt back in the 80s when Reagan came into power. This is what 40 years of Reaganism has brought us. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Okay. This has become a crisis for America. And it's not just, oh yeah, the billionaires are holding on to all this stuff. It is that wealth inequality right now in the United States is worse than it literally has ever been. Even worse than 1929, which brought about the Great Crash. And one of the things that we know about wealth inequality is that it is socially destructive. Kate Pickens and Richard Wilkinson wrote this book called The Spirit Level and another book called Why Inequality Matters. They have a whole website on this stuff. And what you find is that the more unequal a society is, the greater the distance between the very rich and the very poor, the more unequal a society is, the higher rates you have of diseases of all kinds, of drug addiction, of alcoholism, of teenage pregnancies, of sexually transmitted diseases, of unwanted pregnancies and abortions as well, of crime, of homicide and suicide, higher rates of mental illness, higher rates of depression, lower rates of social engagement, lower rates of civic participation, including voting. All of these social ills come out of a small group of people. In this case, literally just a few thousand people in the United States or a few thousand families in the United States owning something like 70, 80% of the entire wealth of the country. Three guys owning 50% of the wealth of the entire country. Three men have accumulated an amount of wealth equal to that of the bottom half of Americans. Now that's mind boggling when you think about it and it's extraordinarily destructive. In 1982, 
The Walton family was worth $690 million, which in today's dollars is $1.8 billion, and the Cokes were worth $500 million, which in today's money is $1.4 billion. So they were both worth a little less than $2 billion in today's money. Today, the Waltons are worth $169 billion, and the Cokes are worth $107 billion. Um, a lot of that, in fact, it, when, you, when you read this report that was published, the majority of that increase in wealth was basically through investment, and they had gamed the tax laws. And uh, you did not see these kinds of dynastic wealth exploding in the United States in the period from 1935 until 1983 or thereabouts, because the top tax rate was 74%. Well, it was 74% from 67 forward, and it, it was 91% from 1933 up to 1967 19, uh, uh, or 66, whatever the year it was that, that uh, LBJ lowered it to 74%. So, I, you know, I think if we went back to that, then we would have the money to do the roads and bridges. But what these guys are doing, Omar, is the old thing that uh, John D. Rockefeller, his PR guy said, go out in the street and pass out shiny dimes. And he called the newspapers and they took pictures of it and everybody thought, oh, Rockefeller's a philanthropist. And then he started funding, you know, a few philanthropic things, you know, build a theater here, pay for a library there. And suddenly it was like, oh, this is wonderful. I guess we need billionaires to pay for things for us. And they're doing the same thing right now. And the Gates Foundation and all these others. But Chris in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, when we look at Russell Kirk's a conservative mind, and we really distill down to, like, the core philosophy of conservatives and Republicans, could an argument be made that these billionaires, like the Koch brothers and Shelley Adelson et al., these, you know, cabal, this is an Alex Jones stuff, they're out in the open, that them advocating libertarian economics is not necessarily in bad faith. If they philosophically believe that more stable societies are achieved by them ruling everything and all of us being poor, can you? that's not them necessarily not acting in bad faith. That's looking out for what their core philosophy is. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't saying that they were acting in bad faith. <laughs> They're certainly acting in their own interests. They want to do the things that will make them richer. I think your point is well taken, Chris. Uh, for the people who don't know what we're talking about here, uh, Russell Kirk in 1951 or 52 wrote a book called The Conservative Mind, the book that kicked off the modern-day conservative movement in a really, really big way. This is the book that got William F. Buckley going. This is the book that got Barry Goldwater going. Uh, this, this is the book that got my dad going. It opens, quoting a British conservative from the, from the late 1700s, talking about how people who are not wealthy should not be allowed to vote. A lot of flowery language in the conservative mind. But at its core, basically what he was saying was, look out if this middle class thing that Franklin Roosevelt started back in 1933 with the New Deal, this idea that Every person, every family should be able to be sustained by one person, typically the husband, but, you know, one person in the family working a 40-hour week and taking a couple of weeks of vacation every year and being able to own a house and being able to buy a car. And that middle class grows and becomes the largest part of American society. They're going to start getting uppity. They're going to start, they're going to start demanding things. They're going to start asking for more of our wealth. They're going to start wanting socialism. And we've already seen the first cracks in this with Social Security, the first major socialist program in the United States. That's not my opinion, it was Russell Kirk's. He doesn't explicitly lay it out, but it's certainly there between the lines in the book that the most stable form of 
political system as what England had at the time that Charles Dickens was writing. And Charles Dickens knew this very well. His father couldn't pay his debts and he got thrown in debtor's prison. Dickens wrote during a time when England had not minimum wage laws, but maximum wage laws. And it wasn't for the rich. It was maximum wage laws for the working poor so that they wouldn't become the middle class. The middle class was considered a dangerous thing. The, the, the British middle class was literally Scrooge and Marley. It was small business people, doctors and lawyers. That was it. That was the British middle class in the, in the 19th century. You had a very small ruling elite that was very wealthy and held all the political power. You had a very small middle class that largely served the ruling elite or provided goods and services to the working poor. And then you had the working poor who could not get out of poverty because of the maximum wage laws. And that's the conservative worldview, that that is, that is how you have a stable society. And by the way, we actually know that they're right. That actually does produce a stable society. England didn't have a revolution. We did. And we did in 1776 because a middle class had emerged. People say, oh, Jefferson and Madison and all those guys, they were all the you know, rich people, insanely rich people. Jefferson died in bankruptcy. George Washington died broke. Madison's wealth did not even sustain his heirs. The wealthiest man who signed the Declaration of Independence was John Hancock. His wealth in today's dollars was $700,000. That's how much he had. These guys were the upper middle class. Yeah, they had big houses, but land was cheap. I mean, land was functionally free, and it had a lot of wood on it, and that was functionally free. Exploiting slavery, as they did in the southern states, and exploiting immigrant labor, indentured immigrant labor, in, in most cases, as they did in the northern states, because so many people were flooding in North America at the time. There were lots and lots of people who could cut those trees down and provide you with cheap wood to build a house. Housing was cheap. And frankly, those houses weren't all that big. If you look at you know, the British squires, their houses were much more elegant than Monticello. In fact, the, the thing that amazed me when I visited Monticello was how small it was, actually. So it was the middle class that perpetrated the revolution here in the United States. And so, you know, yeah, Russell Kirk was absolutely right. Anyhow, uh, Mike Pence is under fire today because, I, I mean, this just is breathtaking. Mike Pence said that he was going to have a minister open a campaign event. He's out there stumping for some Republican who was a rabbi who could, you know, say a prayer for on behalf of or whatever, however it was phrased for these 11 people who were who were slaughtered in the synagogue, the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh. Now, there's this very small slice of Christianity called Messianic Judaism. And it is people who grew up as Jews, who are, you know, who were born Jews, who, who continue to maintain a Jewish identity. In this case, this guy calls himself a rabbi. He dresses like a rabbi. He's yarmulke and a shawl and the whole bit. But they say that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's already come. Now, every branch of Judaism rejects this. Every branch of Judaism. This is a branch of Christianity. These people are Christians. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, that's kind of the definition of being a Christian. So Pence asked this guy, Rabbi Lauren Jacobs, who, is, who Pence referred to as a leader in the Jewish community, to uh, do the prayer. 
And Jacob's prayed in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. And, you know, <laughs> this, this is this is bizarre. I mean, just just the, the you know, bizarre. There are a lot of other things that are also going on in the world. The big banks, state after state after state, is running literally billions of dollars in tax money and you know other functions through their state every year. And that money is ending up in banks in New York who are declaring massive profits and sharing huge dividends and multi-multi-million dollar salaries uh, to their senior executives. When instead they could be doing like North Dakota did and have a state bank so that the profit from banking stays with the state. Uh, one of the uh, advocates for this is Phoenix Goodman, who is the co-founder of Public Bank LA, the website publicbankla.com. You can tweet Phoenix Goodman at Phoenix underscore Goodman, just like Tom underscore Hartman. Phoenix, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. Tell us about uh, Public Bank LA and what's going on uh, with uh, Measure B on the ballot in California. We're, as, as you mentioned, looking to create a municipal public bank. Uh, and it's a little bit different than the state bank because it's at the local level. And that is unprecedented in the history of the United States. So we're going to take the benefits of recapturing the interest and fees that we that's currently extracted by Wall Street of our public funds, uh, and then bringing that down to the local level. Now that's on the ballot on November 6th. It's Measure B, uh, and if that passes, that's going to amend the city charter to allow the first step uh, in this process to continue. What we ultimately hope to do is take this a lot farther than Los Angeles. We want to spark a revolution across the entire United States, where cities everywhere start declaring independence from Wall Street. Wow. Uh, I mean, this would be an extraordinary thing. Are there are there any other public banks outside of North Dakota so far? There was one that was recently chartered in American Samoa, as a matter of fact. Wow! Uh, and yeah, where it, it just happened very recently. Uh, the one of the most notable examples is in Germany, where forty percent of their banks are actually public. Uh, and they did have a disproportionate effect on their green energy boom because they were able to provide financing for their solar infrastructure. And right. that's the type of uh, example that we like to see with public banking here to identify these important policy needs. Because everything requires money, you not only want to feed what we need with, with appropriate financing, you want to starve what we don't want, like oil pipelines, weapons manufacturers, private prisons, by moving that money away from Wall Street. When I lived in Germany back in the 80s, I uh, used the post office for my banking initially, the first month or three, until I opened a regular bank account. And I don't know if Germany still has postal banking, but I know it's popular around the world. Bernie Sanders has been talking about it here in the United States. That would be, you know, sort of public banking at the federal level. I'm assuming that post offices are purely federal institutions. Do I have that all right? And why do you even need a Measure B on the ballot in Los Angeles to allow a public bank to be set up by the city of Los Angeles? Okay, good question. So the, to answer your first question, postal banking is retail banking. So you as an individual would be able to deposit a, you know, your money into a checking account, which is the public sector uh, you know, uh, bank. But what we're actually looking to do is create a bank whose sole customer is the city of Los Angeles. When we pay our tax dollars, when we pay parking fines, et cetera, that, get, that money gets housed uh, in, a, in a financial institution. And in addition to that, when a city takes out infrastructure loans, uh, it can get very expensive because over a 30-year term, you're looking at spending uh, our tax dollars 50% above the initial cost. 
right. and all that's extracted by Wall Street. So this is a public sector bank for the public sector. Um, that's the difference between what we're doing in postal banking, but we're mm-hmm. certainly very for postal banking as well. It's, uh, there's many pillars to public banking. Now, why do we need it on at the ballot? Well, in the charter currently in Los Angeles, there is a specific language that, that states that the city cannot engage in commercial, uh, commercial enterprises. In order to amend the charter, you do need to make a referendum uh, out of that to, to, uh, to make that happen. But it's been, it's been great that that is the case because, frankly, um, one of the biggest issues of, of how do we get this to happen is we had to create the consciousness in the public mind right, of, of what mm-hmm. this is and, and what the benefits are. After 2008, there were no really revolutionary ideas lying around, so we basically resuscitated the, the zombie that failed, right? Um, in 2011, when Occupy came to the fore, they were viscerally against the system, the banking system. But one of the biggest critiques about Occupy is, well, what is your specific policy agenda? What exactly... What's your solution? Yep. And, yeah. and, and we believe full-heartedly this is literally what Occupy craved. What they needed is public banking, very specifically. Yeah. And this is this is this is the resuscitation of that Occupy 2.0. This time with an extremely focused policy agenda. I know, I know that uh, there's been some talk about uh, statewide public banking in California. That that uh, no. California is literally providing uh, something on the order of six to fifteen billion dollars a year in profits for the uh, banks in, in New York, or at least that's a number I've heard. Correct me if I'm wrong, if you know the actual number. Um, that, uh, where's that at? So that's, that has not gone as far as the municipal public banking movement, although we are very forced California State Bank as well. Uh, from a political perspective, it's a, it's a lot bigger uh, of a bite to chew, uh, for obvious reasons. It's a lot bigger of an entity, and we have to coordinate across the entire state to make that happen. We're certainly for it. It's already been on the agenda in 2011. It was vetoed by Jerry Brown. Um, this time, we do believe that that will end up succeeding as well. But what we're focusing on specifically is bringing that to the municipal level. To us, that's the most important yeah. unit. Because you're going to have something that's going to reflect the role of a, a, a small constituency. So you really have that sensitivity to local needs. Ultimately, the vision is state banks everywhere, city banks everywhere, postal banks everywhere, turning banking from a rapacious system to a public utility. Like it is in Germany. Sounds like a plan. Phoenix Goodman, publicbankla.com. And you can tweet Phoenix at Phoenix underscore Goodman or Public Bank LA. Phoenix, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Good talking with you. Take one atom of nitrogen and bond it with one atom of oxygen and boom, you just created nitric oxide, a miracle molecule your own body makes that fuels your cardiovascular health, keeping you vibrant. But as we all age, our bodies need help generating more natural nitric oxide. Superbeets by Human N has harnessed the power of nutrient-enriched beets and created a superfood that helps your body make more nitric oxide on its own. The core philosophy of Human N is to develop heart-healthy products for your body. One teaspoon of Superbeats daily supports your cardiovascular health and blood pressure levels, giving you natural energy without the need of a quick caffeine kick or sugar high. We're talking real. We're talking healthy, natural energy. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats and free shipping with your first purchase. Feel the 1 plus 1 equals boom effect of Superbeats. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com today.
Today, we're reading about Thunderdome politics, an uncivil war taking back our democracy in an age of Trumpian disinformation and Thunderdome politics by Greg Sargent, the Washington Post columnist. This is from his chapter on voter suppression. It's page 37. Republicans and Democrats inhabit different political realities, as mentioned in a previous chapter. But there are certain facts about our politics that are just objectively true. One of them is this. Generally speaking, efforts to make it harder to vote are almost always pushed by Republicans. You cannot understand what is happening in American politics right now without recognizing this stark and very fundamental difference between the two major political parties. During this decade, procedural hurdles were put into place in around 20 states that in some manner or other have made it harder to vote or to register to vote or have undone previous efforts to make voting or registering easier or have otherwise threatened serious disenfranchisement. Most of them were the creation of Republican lawmakers and officials. The difference in the two parties' national platforms for 2016 tells the story. The GOP platform champions additional hurdles that are absurdly disproportionate to the phantom abuse it alleges, while the Democratic platform champions multiple specific ways to make it easier to vote, not harder. The most common and controversial of methods used by Republicans to suppress Democratic turnout is the requirement that would-be voters present identification at the polls. The game here tends to turn on requiring forms of ID that some groups are less likely to have, making participation harder for them. Other restrictions include techniques like cutting back on early voting and making it harder to register, both of which have, in recent years, been instituted in multiple states. Republicans who have passed laws making it harder to vote have tended to claim such measures are necessary to protect against, quote, voter fraud. We'll look at this in more detail below, but for now, note that most of the states that have passed such measures did so while under Republican control. As New York University political scientist Samuel Isikoff has memorably put it, the single predictor necessary to determine whether a state will impose voter access restrictions is whether Republicans control the ballot access process. Scholars trace the modern era of warfare over election rules to the intensely contested presidential election of 2000, in which a divided Supreme Court halted the recount in Florida, throwing the presidency to George W. Bush. The closeness and partisan acrimony of that contest, combined with the intense national focus on election rules that accompanied the court battle over it, helped persuade both parties to invest much more attention and energy on those rules. As a result, both the implementation of measures restricting the ballot and the legal battles over them have intensified in recent years. A brief glance at the surprising history of voter ID laws begins to tell the story of this tightening. In the 1970s, several states implemented voter ID measures, but all of them provided for ways that voters without the proper ID could cast a ballot. By 2000, there were 14 such laws, and they had been implemented by politicians in both parties. But by the mid-2000s, amid rising post-2000 acrimony, a handful of red states began implementing voter ID laws that the nonpartisan National Conference of State Legislatures described as, quote, strict, meaning that they make it easy to disqualify those who don't pass muster. After one of those laws in Indiana was challenged and then upheld in 2008 by the Supreme Court, an escalation began that gained momentum in the Obama era. From 2010 onward, the adoption of voter ID laws in general and of strict ones in particular accelerated. Though a handful were blocked in the courts, as of this writing, a total of 34 states have voter ID laws in effect, 24 that are deemed non-strict and 10 that are deemed strict. The strict ones are in red states or in swing states where they were implemented by Republicans. The story is very similar if you evaluate the state's rules in a broader way. 
by including not just voter ID measures, but also cutbacks to early voting and restrictions on registration. Here the trend is just as pronounced. After the 2010 elections, the Brennan Center for Justice documented a sharp rise in efforts to pass such measures in the state legislatures across the country. Not all these efforts bore fruit, but many did. By the time voting took place in Election Day 2016, some 14 states had these new restrictions in place for the first time in a presidential election. Now, as of this writing by the Brenner Center's count, some 20 states have successfully implemented either strict voting ID requirements or cutbacks to early voting or restrictions on registration or other measures with meaningful disenfranchising effects. If you're a liberal who's frustrated by the seemingly unbreakable Republican dominance of national politics, not to mention GOP control of most state governments across the country, then the chances are that these restrictions figure heavily into your explanation of this GOP supremacy. Indeed, social media has been absolutely saturated in recent years with variations of the lament that Republican political dominance is largely maintained through a combination of nefarious and undemocratic tactics, such as ballot restrictions that keep constituencies unfriendly to the GOP from voting, and extreme gerrymanders that have, in effect, built a fortress around the GOP's majority in the House of Representatives. Democrats frequently invoke the, the GOP's use of these tactics, often justifiably, to raise money and to galvanize turnout. This narrative contains some important truths. Some of the forms that these restrictions on voting access have taken in recent years are diabolically obvious in their uh, efforts to keep constituencies supportive of Democrats from voting. Still others boast the distinction of being more insidiously designed and thus less obvious in their intentions. The book is An Uncivil War by Greg Sargent of the Washington Post. Charlotte in Tallahassee, Florida. Hey, Charlotte, what's on your mind? Wonderful day, Tom, and thanks be to God for you. We are uh, living in some dangerous times, and this is because of these oligarchs and very specifically this Koch brother here in Florida. When Jeb Bush came into Florida 20-plus years ago, as a person who had no political experience, only name recognition from having been a Bush, was supported by this Alex Koch-funded think tank white paper group, many of them, American Enterprise, uh, mm -hmm. you could just start Cato Institute, the libertarian one, yeah. uh, you, you could just start naming all of these different, and the Koch brothers funding, now they're in academe, I'm in academe, and they now have come to the black campuses, HBCUs, over 100 in the nation still, and they've come in because of state disinvestment in HBCUs, and they've come in and purchased these uh, entrepreneurial, market-free set-up centers where they have instituted the professors to be then selected by them, then they get to choose 25% of the boards. And this is the kind, now because we have exposed their Alex legislative uh, uh, prowl, they now are trying to change their image and say that they want prison reform. Right. That, They've been saying criminal justice reform. Yeah, Somet yeah, sometimes yeah, they talk about drug law reform. Yeah, criminal justice, that's the word, yes. Yeah. And, not, and by the way, there's a, there's a magic piece to that, Charlotte. In their criminal justice reform, they are suggesting that we should change the laws so that if a CEO, if a senior executive in a company makes a decision that leads to somebody dying, that yes. you have to prove that it was their intention that that person died. And okay. what they're saying is that we, they want to update the laws. You know, sure, they're willing to cut some of the drug crimes and some yes, of the sentences yes. and things, but they want to update the laws so that wealthy white executives can no longer be prosecuted for the crimes their companies commit. Of their, of, of, right, of their grift, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, but there is, a, there is a light 
at the end of the tunnel, because I, I, I believe in the faith and hope uh, and Brothers Keeper model. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that we have some issues that will, in fact, unite us. The criminal justice reform, not notwithstanding their, because uh, this is just false propaganda, they, they realize that the, the, the country and you and others, very specifically, have exposed their agenda with their corporate's agenda that they have only wanted to create their control over the labor and uh, social network of privatization of the country. That's all they want. They know we now see them. So this is this propaganda to change their image to say that they now want nonprofits to be a part of the scope of their work. They now want academe, and they've come in, like I said, and they've bought up these schools because we have not been getting investment. But to go back to the hope, the hope where I believe we can unite the people to a new collective common good that you talk about. And I believe, I just think it's wonderful, uh, that commons. I use that so much in the lecture now. Thank you, Charlotte. Uh, because it has a way of, of, of really uniting the message. Charlotte, thank you for the call. A great contribution to the show. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 